Thank you, Michael. That was awesome. Uh, that was cool. You know, I think about the passage in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. And, uh, you know, we as the body of Christ can be with people in their hard times and help bring that life and lift them up. Uh, many of y'all know that my father has been going through chemo uh, here in Amarillo, been living with us. And uh, Mother's Day morning at 3.30, uh, he fell. He was on the way to the restroom and broke his hip and had to take him to the, the emergency room and and, uh, but it's been great. Those of you who have come by and just loved on him, he's really appreciated. So I just wanted to th- take a personal moment to thank you for that. And it just, it does mean a lot that we as the body of Christ can come and lift each other up to be that salt that helps lift up the carrot that's down. So thank you. Speaking of Mother's Day, if you remember on Mother's Day, uh, you may remember that we read the story uh, in Acts 16, the story of how the Apostle Paul helped start the church in Philippi with a woman named Lydia. Now, on Mother's Day, I pointed out that Lydia really is the model Proverbs 31 woman. Primary preaching text was Proverbs 31, but I used her as a biblical example of a woman who worked hard and used all of her time, talents, and treasures to help do the work of of God's kingdom. And as you may recall, in Acts 16, Paul is on his second missionary journey, and he has a vision of a Macedonian man while they're in the city of Troas. And with this vision, he and his uh, traveling companions like Luke and Silas, they all agree, well, God is calling us to go to Macedonia. And so they go to Philippi, which was a leading city in Macedonia. However, when they get to Philippi, there's no synagogue, but there is a river where they go to, uh, minister, to minister and share the good news with women who are praying there. And one of the women whose heart is opened by the Lord to the message of Jesus is Lydia. And through her using her gift of hospitality and her financial resources, she was a successful dealer in purple. She houses Paul and her companions, and God starts the church in Philippi with Lydia. And of course, later in the story, if you continue reading Acts 16, you'll see that while Paul and Silas are in Philippi, eventually they are imprisoned. And while they're in prison, remarkably, rather than complaining and moaning and groaning, they spend the night singing hymns to God and praying to God. Well, God honors their prayers and God brings an earthquake that literally opens the door cells of all of the jails, uh, all the cells in that prison. And the jailer becomes very nervous because he knows that if any of his prisoners escape, he will be held accountable. And so Paul, rather than trying to escape, says, don't kill yourself. And the jailer says, well, what must I do to be saved? Because he's been listening to what Paul and Silas have been singing. And Paul tells him, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And Paul brings this jailer and his entire household, we are told, ultimately to faith. Well, eventually the city leaders of Philippi are worried and troubled by Paul because they have imprisoned him, they have flogged him, and they ask him to leave the city because what he's doing is creating quite an uproar among people. And so he leaves Philippi and heads on to Thessalonica, the capital of the region of Macedonia. And so we pick up that story here this morning in Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 15. It may be found on page 1178 of your Red Pew Bible, Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you so much that you are the God who inspired Luke to put pen to paper so that we might have the orderly account of the first century church, the story of saints like Paul who helped start a church in Thessalonica to bring the good news to people who had never heard it. 
God, we pray this morning that as we read this word, that you might again speak to us, that we might hear from you, and that we might be ultimately transformed from the inside out. May the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Acts chapter 17, beginning with verse 1. Listen to the word of the Lord. Now when they, Luke and Silas and Timothy and Paul's companions, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, and as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the world with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. When the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving him, receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And Paul went in as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now undoubtedly, when Paul reasoned from the Old Testament scriptures, explaining that the Christ must suffer and die, Paul most likely made reference to the Old Testament passage that Murray read just a moment ago, Isaiah 53. Jesus actually quotes Isaiah 53, verse 12, when in Luke 22, verse 37, he says, it must be fulfilled in me that he was numbered among the transgressors. Jesus identifies himself as that suffering servant who was predicted by Isaiah in Isaiah 53, 700 years before Jesus was ever born. In Acts chapter 8, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53 when when Philip came upon him. and, And this Ethiopian eunuch was reading Isaiah 53 where it says, Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opened not 
his mouth to explain to this Ethiopian eunuch that this is Jesus who has suffered on our behalf so that we might be saved. And this eunuch was baptized. It's the first church, century church saw Jesus as a clear fulfillment of Isaiah 53. So most likely when Paul was reasoning from the scriptures, he was using Isaiah 53, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to die on a cross for our sins. And then we read in verse 4 and 5, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, unfortunately, this is kind of the pattern for the Apostle Paul when he's at planting churches. If you remember uh, last fall, we went through much of Acts, and we talked about how Paul and his first missionary journey was in the region of Galatia. And when he went to Iconium or to Antioch or to Lystra, he would first start in the synagogue, and he would preach the gospel. And some people would believe, but many would not. Those Jews who did not believe would then seek to persecute Paul, and he would be driven from one city to the next. Yes, the Jews are jealous of this message, this gospel message that is being preached In fact, if you remember in Acts chapter 14, we told the story about how Paul had fled Antioch and Iconium and he went to Lystra and he began to preach there. But then Jews from Antioch and Iconium make their way to Lystra and they see Paul and they get the whole city in an uproar and eventually they they stone Paul right outside the city, leaving him for dead. But Paul gets up and he keeps on preaching. He continues the work of the Great Commission, making disciples of all nations. This very same thing is happening in our text this morning. Paul has been preaching in Thessalonica. He's driven out of Thessalonica. He goes to Berea to start to preach to the Jews in the synagogue there. And then jealous Jews from Thessalonica come to Berea and they begin to get the community in an uproar and drive Paul out of the city of Berea. Why does Paul continue to preach the gospel despite all the persecution that he faces on his missionary journeys? I mean, it seems like Paul is chased out of almost every town he goes to. Paul was persecuted in Antioch and Iconium. He was stoned and left for dead in Lystra. He was beaten with rods and imprisoned in Philippi. He's driven out of town by jealous Jews in Thessalonica and Berea. Why does Paul insist on preaching the gospel? Wouldn't it have been easier for Paul just to stay home and read his Bible and have some personal quiet time and prayer and just be a nice quiet Christian, like a lot of us are? Wouldn't that have been easier? But that's not what Paul does. He continues to preach the gospel, despite the persecution. Why? I believe the answer is found in Acts 17, verses 6 to 7, where we read, and it's actually on the front of your bulletin if you look at it, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them and they they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another King Jesus. Why does Paul continue to preach the gospel? Because as the first part of that text says, Jesus turns the world upside down. Jesus turns the world upside down. Let's look closely again at that charge that we find in Acts 17, verses 6 to 7. Let's look at that again. These men who have turned the world upside down, that's the charge, they have turned the world upside down, have come here also. 
And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, to say that there is another king other than Caesar was a huge charge in the first century. It was considered an act of rebellion. In fact, history tells us that in 16 AD, Emperor Tiberius had established a decree that banned any prophecies or prediction of future rulers, particularly any prediction of rulers who might replace current rulers. Tiberius was a very anxious man. He didn't want anybody predicting that he was going to be replaced. No prophecies. That would be illegal. And if we read 1 Thessalonians, we'll see that Paul taught the Thessalonians clearly that they should turn from the idols of culture. And the primary idol in Thessalonica, we were told by archaeologists, were statues of emperors. Those were the primary idols in Thessalonica. People were treating the emperors as if they were gods. They were worshiping past and present Caesars, treating them as if they were God, these emperors. In 1 Thessalonians, we can see clearly that Paul taught the Thessalonians to turn from these false gods and turn towards the one true God, Jesus. Jesus, who is going to return one day to make his reign and power known to everyone. For in 2 Thessalonians, we can see that Paul taught the Thessalonians about the kingdom of Christ and how Christ was going to return and redeem and ultimately reign over all. So, when the jealous Jews make the claims that Paul is preaching and turning the world upside down by talking about a new king named Jesus, technically they're right. He wa- they was talking about a new king named Jesus. And Jesus does turn the world upside down. You see, before Jesus, every other religion in the world, including the Jewish faith, emphasized what you needed to do to be made right with God or the gods in the case of Greek mythology. The emphasis was always upon human effort and what you could do to appease the gods. Even in Judaism in the first century, there was an emphasis primarily on rules, rituals, and regulations. Not a relationship with God. Then Jesus came. And he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. I love the way that Tim Keller says it this way from Redeemer Presbyterian Church. He says, the gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth, lived the life we should have lived, meaning a life of obedience, and died the death we should have died. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to this earth, lived the life we should have lived, and died the death we should have died. As Isaiah 53 says, uh, verse 6 states that, we, that Murray uh, read so beautifully a moment ago. It says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Only Jesus could pay the price for our sins because only Jesus was the perfect sacrifice. He lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. And so when Jesus died, he didn't die for his sins. He died for all of our sins together. He was the lamb without blemish who paid the price for our sins with his death on a cross. It's the gospel of Jesus turns the world upside down because it emphasizes what Jesus has done, not what we need to do. In almost every other religion in the world, it's about what you need to do to to earn your salvation, but our emphasis and our message of the gospel of grace is about what Jesus has already done, and we simply receive it as a gift through faith. 
in all of our lives, we are measured, are we not, by what we do. The student who is the valedictorian is the student who has the best grades at the end of their graduation. They are measured by their grades. The teams that win score the most points. The salesman who gets the greatest commission is the person who had the most sales. The lawyer who makes the most money is the one who built the most hours. All of our life in every other category seems to be measured by what we do. But our message is about what Jesus has done, not what we need to do. That turns the world upside down. Yes, the gospel of Jesus turns the world upside down. Just ask the apostle Paul. Paul, as you remember, was, well, he was going by his Jewish name, Saul, and he was on the road to Damascus to go and persecute Christians. But what happens? God interrupts him and blinds him with this light, and Jesus appears to him and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul's life is forever changed. And he goes by his Roman name, Paul now, as he begins to preach the gospel and, and brings people to Christ and begins to plant churches. Yes, the gospel of Jesus changes everything. It takes a hard-hearted murderer like Paul and makes him a soft-hearted lover of people. And according to Jesus, according to Jesus, he is going to come back. And when he returns, we're all going to have to give an account of what we did with the time that we had here on this earth. For he tells us he will gather his elect from the four ends, four winds of the earth. And according to Jesus, we'll have to give an account for every careless word that was spoken. From the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verses 34 to 37, while speaking to a group of Pharisees, Jesus says this, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak. For by words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Wow. Now, I don't know about you, but Matthew twelve thirty four makes me a little anxious. Uh, specifically, verse... Uh, was. Uh, Verse 36, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they have spoken. Anybody here ever say a careless word before? Anybody? Am I the only one? You can raise your hand high. We can own that. If you're not sure, you can ask my wife, Sarah, and my three kids. They'll tell you about many careless words I have spoken in our life together. Wow, we're going to be judged for every careless word that is spoken. In fact, James, the brother of Jesus, tells us that it's very difficult to to tame the tongue. James, uh, the brother of Jesus, in his epistle, James 3, verse 6 to 12, writes this. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea, creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond 
yield fresh water. Wow. So what should we do? We, we seem to have this sense that, yes, I've confessed that Jesus is Lord, but out of my mouth comes cursing, sometimes to my fellow men, sometimes to, to my own family members. What are we to do? Well, as Jesus said a moment ago in Matthew 12, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. I believe we have to change this before we contain this. As you read just a moment ago, Jesus tells us that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. If you've never asked Jesus to come into your heart, there's no way you'll be able to tame your tongue. We have to take that first step of of confessing that Jesus Christ alone is Lord and opening our heart to him in faith. But even if you're like me and you asked Jesus to come into your heart many, many years ago, we still need the Holy Spirit to continue to shape us and mold us so that ultimately we might be able to tame our tongue. We need to be able to surrender our wills to Jesus each and every day, not just once. So how do we do that exactly? How do we surrender our wills to Jesus? Well, you ever notice that in the gospel accounts, Jesus is always very busy, but he never seems to be in a hurry. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 8, Jesus is told that there is a young girl who is dying. And so with the crowds pushing him, he he moves over to see this woman. And there's a a real hurried sense of the father and everyone who's sending for Jesus. They want him to get there as soon as possible so that he might save this girl from dying. While he's on the way, he's being crowded and pushed and touched by many people. And this woman who has a hemorrhage for 12 years, the same age of the child who is dying, in desperation, touches the hem of the robe of Jesus, believing that if I just touch his robe, then I might be healed. Jesus feels the power leave him. And rather than continuing on his way, he stops everything and says, someone has touched me. And Peter's like, man, everybody's touching you, Jesus. He said, no, I felt power leave me. Who was it? Then this desperate woman who's had a, a bleeding for 12 years falls at his knees and says, it was I, Lord. And he turns to her, compassion says, your faith has made you well. And then he goes on to heal that girl who has died. Yes, Jesus was busy, but he was never in a hurry. He had time for everyone. It's truly remarkable when you think about it, because his ministry only lasted three years, and yet if we read the gospel accounts, Jesus did many, many things. How is it that Jesus was able to be so productive so compassionate, so loving to so many different people despite the stresses and the hurried nature of the life he was living. I know what you're thinking. Yeah, Howard, that was Jesus and uh, he was the son of God and he's perfect and what are we to do? I mean, he never made a mistake, right? I mean, how, how can we be expected to live up to such expectations to, well, to be busy but never in a hurry? I mean, only Jesus could pull that off, Right? Well, the Apostle Paul tells us in Colossians that Christ in you is the hope of glory. We can open our hearts to Jesus and trust him. And as we do that, the Holy Spirit comes within us. In fact, Paul tells us that our bodies become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit, Paul tells us in Galatians that we're able to bear fruits of the Spirit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We'll simply walk by the Spirit Take time to listen to the Spirit. So how do we walk by the Spirit exactly? How do we walk according to the Spirit so that our hearts are transformed and ultimately our tongues are tamed and we become the people like Jesus who is loving and patient and kind and joyful and self-controlled and gentle and good? 
How do we walk by the Spirit? I believe we walk by the Spirit by ultimately doing the kinds of things that Jesus did. If you read the Gospels closely, you'll see that before Jesus begins his ministry, he spends 40 days fasting and praying in the wilderness, feasting on the Word of God. Before Jesus picks his disciples in the Gospel of Luke and decides which are going to be the 12, he spends a whole night in prayer. After feeding the 5,000, he doesn't stand before the crowds and continue to receive their adulation. No, he gets away to be alone with the Father. In fact, the disciples who are following Jesus, walking alongside him every day, they finally ask him, Jesus, teach us to pray like you pray, because you pray in ways we've never seen. You have this intimate relationship with God. We want to have that kind of relationship. And they see that Jesus was a man who prayed, and he prayed a, a prayer of submission in the Garden of Gethsemane before being betrayed and crucified, saying, not my will, but your be done. Yes, our hearts are ultimately transformed as we do what Jesus does. We pray, specifically as we meditate on Scripture and pray and and submit our will to God. Two weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to Westmont College for an academic conference to celebrate the 40-year anniversary of this book, Celebration of Discipline. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read this book. If you haven't, I would just say go buy it. It's by Richard Foster. We actually have copies of it in our uh, church library. It's the best, next to the Bible, it's the book I've read the most. Uh, I've read through it multiple times. I've taught it in every church I've ever been a part of. And Richard Foster, the author of Celebration of Discipline, it's one of the great Christian classics, uh, contemporary Christian classics. He tells us that he wrote this book because he was concerned about the lack of spiritual depth in the church in our day. Now, originally he wrote it in 1978. Does anybody here remember the 70s? Anybody? Okay, yeah, okay, good. I I was born in the 70s. I remember the 70s. Growing up in Midland, Texas in the 70s, there were really only a few things you could do on a Sunday because we had these blue laws. You remember that? Most of the stores were closed. You couldn't shop. Uh, maybe uh, you, know, you had your grocery store. That was still open. There was the movie theater. But for the most part, you, you were supposed to rest. In fact, no athletic teams ever played on a Sunday. That was outlawed, it seemed. Nobody ever did that. Yet today, athletics are often being played on a Sunday. Every store seems to be opened on a Sunday. But back then, it was a different kind of culture. And there was this expectation, particularly here in West Texas, that you should, you should go to church. That, that was just a part of what you did. And in 1978, the very first sentence of this book, Richard Foster says, superficiality is the curse of our age. Superficiality is the curse of our age. In the 1970s, as Richard Foster looked at the cultural Christianity of America, he felt that that was the curse of our age because ultimately it led to superficiality. There was no depth. Yes, people had the fire insurance in their minds. Yes, I have confessed that Jesus is Lord, and yeah, I told I'll be saved, and that's all I need, but nobody was really growing in grace, as Richard Foster likes to explain. See, this book is about uh, 12 of the spiritual practices that Jesus, the apostles, and many of the earliest church fathers did. And Richard Foster explains these spiritual practices like prayer and meditation on Scripture and fasting and solitude, silence, submission, well, they're ultimately all a means of grace. As we do things, these things, we raise our sails, so to speak, as if we were a boat, so that we might catch the wind of the Holy Spirit, so that we might hear from the Spirit of God, so that we might listen and be empowered to obey. These spiritual practices help us connect to God. 
Help grow in our relationship with God so that ultimately we might be transformed from the inside out. I like the way that uh, John Ortberg talks about these spiritual practices. He talks about it. It's the difference between training and trying. If I have a, a problem with anger, which my kids will tell you every now and then, Dad's got a problem with anger. You know, if I got a problem with anger and I get upset and I, I, I don't tame my tongue like I should, well, I could try real hard never to get angry or I can begin to train to righteousness. Specifically, as James says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. I can practice the spiritual discipline of silence. I can practice the spiritual discipline of solitude so that I might connect to God and not be so worried about the every detail of every moment. Yes, we need to train, use these practices to train so that when that moment of tension comes, we are prepared to respond in a godly way. I love what Proverbs 15 says about taming the tongue and how we should respond. It says, Proverbs 15, verse 1 to 2, it says, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. Once someone says something to you and you feel like you're being attacked, you can get emotive and begin to fight back and try to win the argument. Or you can listen and pray and ask God to reveal to you what's going on with this person that they would say these things right now that we might offer a kind word rather than a harsh word in response. I believe the Apostle Paul was able to persevere and to continue to preach the gospel because he was doing these spiritual practices. He was praying as he did in that prison in Philippi, praying and worshiping God despite his circumstances. And it was through that connection to the Holy Spirit and that connection to Christ that he was able to be strong and to persevere, to continue to preach the gospel, knowing that this world is not all there is, that ultimately we'll have to give an account for every careless word that is spoken. And Paul would have made sure that when his words were measured by God, he was a man who had boldly proclaimed the gospel to others. How often do we pray? What do we tend to pray about? On this memorial weekend, as we remember those who paid the ultimate price that we might have the freedom to assemble here so freely this morning, I feel like we should spend some time praying for our brothers and sisters in Christ who don't have the same freedom. Did you know there are 65 countries in the world where Christians are being targeted and persecuted around the world? Open Doors, you may notice that little yellow sheet of paper that's inside your bulletin. Open Doors is a ministry that we support both financially and through prayer, and you can see that there are 10 countries that are listed. In fact, there's a little prayer guide. If you go to their webpage, they'll give you this little prayer force alert, and today, May 27th, we are called to pray for the country of Iran. And if you'll remember, uh, not long ago, we had uh, Sasan Tavasali on our World Communion Sunday, who's a missionary to Iran. He's an Iranian. Uh, he was originally a, Sh- a Sunni Muslim, or Shiite Muslim. He was a Shiite Muslim. Came to faith in Christ, uh, is now an American uh, pastor uh, with ECO, our denomination. And he works with the Presbyterian Outreach Foundation, helping plant churches through satellite television and satellite radio. Remarkably, the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran. Open Doors is a great ministry. I would t- encourage you to go to their webpage after the service and check them out. There's great ways that we can pray and support those who are being persecuted. You know, on this Memorial Weekend, we remember those who have died and paid the ultimate price so that we might have the freedom to worship here in this country freely today. And we thank God for that sacrifice, but we also want to pray and ask God to be with our brothers and sisters in places like Iran who are not able to worship so freely. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you that through spiritual practices like prayer and meditation on scripture, solitude, silence, submission, 
Lord, that our hearts can be changed from the inside out so that our tongue is much easier to tame, that we might bear the fruits as we sow to the Spirit, as we walk by the Spirit, we might bear the fruits of the Spirit like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters in Iran that you might continue to do a mighty work in them. We thank you that the church in Iran, in fact, is growing despite the persecution, that house churches are multiplying, that people are hearing the gospel through satellite radio and satellite television. We thank you for Sasan and his ministry, the Presbyterian Outreach Foundation. God, we pray you continue to bless Sasan. Give him wisdom in his ministry in Iran. And Lord, we also pray, Lord, for the church in Iran as we've been invited to pray, Lord, that they might be bold in their witness to you, that they, wouldn't, they would be free, that the laws of Iran would change so that it wouldn't be illegal to convert from Islam to Christianity. We pray, Lord, that you would bless uh, all the pastors in Iran who are having to meet under the cover of darkness. We pray for the 200 Christians now in prison for attending prayer meetings. We also pray for the growing communities of Christian converts who must gather for worship in secret house churches around the country. God, we just pray that you would do a mighty work in the church in Iran. And we thank you for the freedom that we have here because men and women have been willing to pay the ultimate sacrifice. Lord, as Christians, we know better than anyone that freedom isn't free. For by your son's death, you have given us freedom from sin and death. So Lord, help us to walk in the new life you've called us to. Help us to be a light of your love in all that we say and do. Your son's name we pray and all God's people said.